VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshatrati. This week, elections, electrification, and energy storage. Over the past few weeks, I've had the pleasure of traveling to Singapore and Australia, visiting startups, companies, and even the Great Barrier Reef to meet the people behind some of the most pioneering climate solutions coming out of these regions. We'll be playing some of those interviews on Zero over the next few weeks. And we begin in Sydney, where I met Ian Learmonth. He's the Chief Executive Officer of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, or the CEFC, which describes itself as the world's largest green bank. The CEFC was set up by the Labour Greens Coalition government in 2012 with an initial funding of 10 billion Australian dollars, or 6.5 billion US dollars. It was tasked with financing green projects at a time when large-scale investments in things like wind and solar were seen as too risky for many private players. As uncontroversial as that might sound today, it almost never happened. The CEFC was nearly shut down in 2013 when the climate-skeptic Liberal National Coalition government took power with a campaign promise of closing the bank. There was a lot of drama, but the fatal event didn't come to pass. Now, the CEFC has become a big part of the energy transition in Australia, with over $12.5 billion invested to date. In 2022, the CEFC celebrated its 10th year, and its star is still rising. It has just received $20.5 billion Australian dollars from the government to accelerate the country's energy transition. For context, last year, the country's total investment in all things energy transition was about 23 billion Australian dollars. This new cash injection is the first in a decade and builds on what became known as Australia's climate elections, which took place in May 2022. We covered those elections in an episode we published last year, which we'll put in the show notes. But to cut a long story short, a wave of new independent politicians campaigned successfully on tackling climate change and a climate progressive Labour government took over from the incumbent climate-skeptic government. Since then, the government has been busy passing some ambitious climate policies, including a target for the country to reach 82% renewable electricity by 2030, up from a little over 30% today. It's a massive undertaking, and the CEFC has been tasked with distributing billions of dollars to make it happen. Today on Zero, I talk with Ian about how this huge amount of money will be spent why the CEFC had so many enemies early on, and what kind of innovative startups and clean tech projects Ian is looking to fund. Ian, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. And we are joining you at an exciting time. The CEFC has just been given a massive new round of cash to invest. But first, can you give us the context of why the CEFC was created and what its purpose has become. Certainly. So the CFC was created just over 10 years ago 
by the Australian government. The Labor government at the time was forming a um, coalition with Greens and the Greens said, we want a Green Bank. It was a prescient move by the politicians at the time. And we had 10 billion Australian dollars to invest in renewable energy, energy efficiency, low emission technologies. We could do debt, we could do equity. We'll hear more about equity and debt as we go through this episode. So a quick explainer. Equity is the money you can put into a company in exchange for shares. Debt is a little more conservative, effectively a loan to the company, which the company has to pay back with interest. The CFC is able to invest money both as equity and as debt. We had to invest in Australia. Otherwise, we were kind of on our own in a sense. So it really came out of I guess, you know, the motivation of the government at the time to have capital, very substantial capital, certainly relative to Australia's GDP, to invest in climate change, carbon abatement and the clean energy transition. Now, in that 10 years, political change in Australia has been quite substantial. There have been swings left and right. And of course, politics of climate around the world has become more polarised. The CAFC came under lots of criticism from the opposition when it was first created. How close did it come to being shut down? Within a whisker, it was really close because not long after we were set up, and it took a, you know, it takes a year or, or, or more for something of this scale to be put together. And by that time, there was an election, in came a new coalition government, a, a kind of conservative government. And one of their undertakings was to shut down the CEFC because they saw it as symbolic of one of the kind of bargaining chips that kept them out of power in the previous election. So they put up a couple of abolition bills. This is when uh, the CFC was in its early days and out there trying to write its first project finance deals and wind farms and other things. And they struggled to get it through the upper house here in Australia, through the Senate. And there was at the time a guy called Clive Palmer, very kind of quite a divisive character, Clive Palmer. That's the man that should be running the country. He can twerk. <laughs> you got the, if you can't twerk, you can't be prime minister. You just got the young vote. Clive Palmer is a billionaire businessman and a former member of parliament who made his fortune in mining, mostly iron and coal. After the 2013 elections, the party he founded held the balance of power in Australia's Senate, which played a crucial role in keeping the CEFC alive in the face of attacks from the ruling Liberal National Coalition. He had the control of the upper house at the time. I don't know whether he was unsure about which way he was going to go. Al Gore happened to be in town. Someone put them together. Al said, hey, let's um, I think it's really important that you vote against the abolition bill. They held a press conference and the rest is history. And funnily enough, I reminded Al Gore of that just about when I started six years ago and he still remembered it very fondly. So yes, we were within a within a whisker of being abolished. What is the CEFC's relationship with government now? It's interesting. I mean, we always play a, a you know very straight hand with these uh, with governments we have a responsible minister of, of the day and for 9 years we had coalition or, or liberal and national government representatives or ministers as our responsible ministers so we do as directed in a sense although it's important to note that the CFC 
Minister's Act says that no minister can tell the CFC what deal to do and what deal not to do. So there's a very strong sense of independence. With the new government who have been in power just over a year now, they have a, you know, they have obviously have a quite a different agenda. You know, they are embracing the CFC in, in you know, in a much kind of greater way. They've changed our act, first time really ever, uh, to say that not only do we have the object um, of creating in, uh, funds into the, the clean energy sector, but we are to deliver on their climate ambitions, which of course is to reduce emissions by 43% by 2030 compared to 2005, and through the investment mandate also help get to 82% renewables by 2030. So that has um, been a very significant thing. And of course, as you mentioned, the 20, in fact, 20.5 billion, um, just not to forget that last 500 million of additional funds have been appropriated to us. So yes, they see us as a very significant platform to deliver on their climate policy. Now, 32% to 82% renewables in the electricity mix within a span of seven years. It's a big challenge. And you are identifying something that is, of course, speculated uh, widely in the Australian media. We're up to the challenge. We're going to do everything we can to help the country get to that place. But we don't shy away from, you know, the, the obstacles and the challenges. And, you know, I think we all, all know what they are, inflationary pressures, grid connection challenges, the supply chain, the cost of money has gone up. All those issues and social license, of course, when you're, you know, you're building out, uh, particularly wind farms onshore, and you're building transmission, you're going to get people who are acutely interested in where it's going because it might be across their, their bottom paddock, and they might want to talk about that, of course. So there are all those things, but yeah, you know, we've got vast amounts of capital. We've got states putting their shoulder to the wheel as well. So yeah, a lot of work to be done, but yes, it is a big challenge. So the target here is to try and focus on renewable deployment, but the climate challenge is really an emissions challenge. And building clean energy will help reduce emissions, no doubt. There are other ways in which you also have to reduce emissions. Australia could build nuclear. It could build carbon capture. Those are not things you fund. Why? When the CFC was established, the negotiations with the political parties, the Greens and Labor, decided they were two technologies that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation wouldn't invest in. And it was generally a feeling, I think, with carbon capture and storage that you know, it could potentially be used in a way to extend the life of coal-fired power stations. So that, I think, was something that discouraged the Greens. So, I mean, having said that, we haven't seen necessarily any great opportunities in that space to date. Um, and nuclear, of course, is, whilst a conversation in Australia is, is still a long way off, I think, being a, a reality. What's different about this $20.5 billion relative to the money you already manage? Yeah, well, the first 10, as I say, had, had a very broad remit and, you know, we've invested right across the economy with it. The 20.5 is broken up into three different categories. $19 billion is part of the rewiring the nation funding, which is the government's policy to build out transmission to help reach 82% renewables by 2030, and that's building out poles and wires across the countryside to capture wind, solar, and storage, long-duration batteries like Snowy 2.0. 
Snowy 2.0 is a hydroelectricity generation and storage project being built in the Snowy Mountains in Southeast Australia. In November 2020, the CEFC invested 125 million Australian dollars to help build out grid infrastructure and transmission lines for Snowy 2.0, which is due to open in 2029. So $19 billion for the rewiring the nation and with probably more direct instructions, if you like, than the, the, the first $10 billion, which is very much you're on your own out there in the economy. Uh, a further billion dollars for uh, a housing energy upgrade fund, which is to use that money with intermediary banks and securitization houses and other credit unions, other non-bank lenders to help provide low-cost finance to allow people to renovate their homes and improve energy efficiency in the home. And then the last half a billion dollars is for equity investments, either directly or through funds in growing interesting Australian companies with, with you know innovative clean tech companies. It's one thing to get to 82% renewables to build wind and solar. We know that getting to that level of penetration requires them to be connected. And that requires huge cables. And everywhere, democratic governments have tried to do it. They've been met with opposition. It's no different here in Australia. So what is being done to overcome the opposition to transmission lines? Yeah, look, it's a very good question. And as you say, Australia's embarking on literally thousands and thousands of kilometres of transmission. And the state governments and the federal government are acutely aware that there is a very significant social licence question around that. We haven't built transmission like this in decades. So for many farmers, having these transmission lines potentially go through their land is, is a real challenge. So I, there's a whole lot of engagement that's going on. There's a massive sort of social license strategy that's being devised to, to see how we can um, this transmission can, can be built. Can it be in, in the least intrusive way? in the right places, maybe it even needs to go underground. Obviously, that's far more expensive. And we're going to have to look at this compensation. Some of the states have come out with reasonably generous compensation packages, although that may be debated by a farmer who, who may say uh, that's not sufficient. So I hope that it doesn't add many years on to the build out of rewiring the nation. But it will, look, it will be a little bit of a bumpy ride, but, you know, we are, as the financier to many of these big projects, we are also extremely sensitive to it. So going down that list then, a billion dollars for the household energy upgrades, what are they and how exactly will you deploy it? The finishing touches on the policy are, are still being made, but the broad understanding and policy objective is to help Australian households will have, certainly have access to low-cost finance so they can uh, go out and double-glaze their, their windows. They can electrify their homes, so get rid of gas, put in induction heating and cooking, those sorts of things to improve energy efficiency kind of in the home and ideal, and of course, reduce power bills as a result. The government would also like there to be uh, a particular focus on middle to low income households because they see that's kind of where the need is. So uh, we're in the process of talking to the financial sector, you know, the sort of people who, who have a, a consumer finance reach whereby we can, you know, we can get to these people. And we're also talking to um, industry and you know, regulators to talk about, you know, what standards should we require before this 
cheap finance is made available and making sure that if people are going into Australian homes and installing various pieces of equipment, technology, that they are fit for purpose. So we are in, in the process of developing all of that. And then the last $500 million, which is to try and invest in companies and technologies that Australia can grow. You've had some experience doing that already. What have you learned from that past experience that you would apply for a larger sum of money that's going to be invested in frontier technologies? Yeah, you're right. We have been in this, in that business for some time. And we've um, probably for well over you know six and a half years or so, we have invested in a, in a very exciting and interesting portfolio of innovative companies, effectively clean tech venture capital, and a terrific team, which we've now partly spun out for Essen Ventures, who are um, a very exciting clean tech manager, very much still connected to the organization. And they're kind of raising their first funds. But I guess what we've learned when we look at the 27 or so companies that we've invested in over the years, I mean, some obvious things that uh, not everyone will get past the valley of death, as they say, which is when you know your cash flow negative and trying to to get to break even. Some of the technologies will struggle to reach a commercial phase, and you know you've got to kind of make a decision about whether you continue to support those companies or you let them go. There'll be some that that'll roll along quite comfortably, and then you'll have your starts, of course, that that will shine, and you'll continue to support them with what they refer to as follow-on rounds. And, you know, at some point there'll be hopefully a liquidity event, there'll be a trade sale or, or an IPO. Venture capital is a numbers game. You've got to try and make sure that every deal is a good one, even though you can't predict the future. You have to manage them very actively. It's hugely labor intensive. Of course, there's probably two out of three or three out of four of our investments we have a board seat on. There's very high engagement with these companies. But we, I guess one thing that I've been incredibly impressed by is the ingenuity and just the innovation in the Australian clean tech sector, particularly around sectors like distributed energy, solar, and you know, the household batteries, and even in agriculture, things that Australia is very strong on. And that's very exciting. We look forward to, you know, using this additional half a billion dollars to make further investments across that sector. Are there examples of startups that just shine or stand out or are sort of the diversity that Australia has to offer? Because the nice thing about technologies is they don't have to remain in Australia. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And maybe just to pick one or two, there's a next generation solar panel company called Sunman, which was has come out of the extraordinary alumni of the University of New South Wales. And Sunman makes an ultralight solar PV panel. It's about a seventh of the weight of a conventional glass-topped panel. And it is already flourishing. It's selling into many markets, Australia, Europe, North America. We've had companies like Zumo, which is a, a, an electric bike company that are doing last-mile delivery. SunDrive that's that looking at replacing the silver that's used in solar PV with copper and maintaining there or, or thereabouts, the same efficiency, but a bit considerably cheaper. There's also agriculture technologies in, in that ag sector, like Loam Bio, which is a soil carbon company, which is is growing rapidly and has huge amounts of support. There's software companies uh, that are regulating the flows of power in the home, a wide variety of very exciting companies. 
After the break, what lessons can other countries learn from the CEFC and why is Australia betting big on batteries? Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands, but they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Injuni also announced a $100 million investment in the Super Battery, the largest standby network battery in the Southern Hemisphere. Could we use this as a case study of how the CEFC chooses what to finance and how much money it ends up giving them? Yeah, the Waratah Super Battery was the largest battery to be built in New South Wales, the largest in Australia, possibly the world, for a short period of time when someone else will overtake it. It was being developed by an exciting new company called Acacia, who had some ex-Tesla execs and had recently been acquired by BlackRock. So they had a terrific pedigree of players, knew what they were doing. They had a contract for part of the capacity with the New South Wales government. It was going to provide some very significant grid stability and reliability, which was sort of incredibly important uh, to us. So we we have kind of come in as a, as a $100 million equity investor in, in what's a very substantial investment, well over a billion dollars all up the capital. And it gives us, I guess, you know, one, one it, I think it, the CFC's name attached to as an investor help with their fundraising and help crowd in other investors. It gave us a ringside seat at the biggest battery in the country, also predicted to make a reasonably good return. And we, you know, we obviously keep an eye on that because we're, we, you know, we do seek to make a return these days at about two to three percent above the five-year government bond rate. So we try and make a good return to taxpayers whilst abating carbon emissions here in Australia. That investment mandate to try and get two to three percent return above the bond rate is written into the law that created CEFC. But according to the National Audit Office, it has failed to keep up with that return so far. And while it attempts to reach that, it doesn't yet have a plan to do so. So why hasn't the CEFC been able to meet this target yet? Maybe just to go back a step, the original, um, well, certainly for the last seven or eight years, the target return the government had given us was 3 to 4% above the five-year government bond rate. And yes, you're right, we haven't met that particular 
target, but we we only ever saw it as a guiding light because it when you're doing a lot of project finance, you know, we were 70% debt, give or take over that period of time with 30% equity, you, you're not going to reach those sorts of returns. And to try and do so, you would have to take a, a lot of probably unnecessary risks. So we were always about a percent below uh, the bottom end of, of that range. Now, the new government came in and we said, the time has come to revisit this target. And we gave them all the reasons why. We showed them our performance. And we said that it's probably not that helpful to have an unrealistic target return. They considered that, went to finance, did the numbers and said, yes, all right, we'll lower it by a percent. You guys now need to target 2 to 3% above the five-year government bond rate. And we're now squarely within that. So good news, the government and the CFC have kind of come to a landing on what is a sensible return and we now fit snugly in it. So compared to a commercial bank, a high street bank, Australia has the big four, what is it that CEFC does that makes it a more attractive partner to have than just going to a commercial bank? It's a very good question and an important question. And CFC is always trying to you know, play a role to fill a gap in the marketplace and help draw in the big four or the investment banks or the international equity, um, the infrastructure fund and whatever it might be. And we do that in different ways. We take risks that others might not be prepared to take. So we might provide a much longer duration for our debt, which allows shorter term debt to come in from the private sector or the big four or the you know the Japanese banks or the European banks, for example, in a big wind farm. That's you know, that's a true and live example. So we might commit early and people go, ah, CFC has underwritten part of this. We know that they're a sensible investor. They've been around a long time. We know the people there and they're owned by the Australian government. That's a vote of confidence in this particular project or company for for the reasons we've been around, we've invested, you know, we've done over, you know, 200 kind of large deals and there's been tens of thousands of smaller deals using intermediaries. We've lost very little money, almost immaterial amount of money. And, um, you know, we've made a, uh, made a good return for the taxpayer. Now, CEFC uses its money to leverage $2.5 from private investors for every dollar it spends. Can this number go higher? Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of question, the one of leverage. And you know, governments are always very focused on um, not being the only dollars in things. We've always tried to push leverage as far as we can, but there's obviously a bit of a natural tension between if you have very, very high leverage, it sort of suggests that there was a lot of people there alongside you. Did they really need you? So sometimes you know, you've got to kind of keep that in mind. Could we go higher? I think, in fact, we, in the last 12 months, our leverage was even a bit higher than that again. So we, I guess we're always trying to shoot between two and four times if we can. There are some deals when it's much higher and other times we might put in nearly all the capital because we're providing concessional debt to a bank which is on lending to remote Australia to try and put more solar on the rooftops out there in, in the country. We spoke with Jigga Shah on the podcast earlier this year. He runs the loan programs office in the U.S. Department of Energy. But he'd said that they had received a lot of interest from other countries around the world for setting up similar institutions. Have you received interest from other countries 
to figure out a CEFC type model in their countries. We have had a lot of interest from Asian countries, even some African countries. Everyone has a, a slightly different take on it. Sometimes it's state government, sometimes it's federal government. Sometimes there's a model where people want to talk to you about combining the lending activity with the grant making activity, whereas in Australia it's bifurcated. We do the lending and investing and ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, which is a terrific organization, does grant making so that we have separate governance and and but but a very complementary approach and, and often in on the same deals from time to time. And we try and share our experience, knowledge uh, as widely and broadly as we can. We help the New Zealand Green Bank uh, Investment Bank uh, become established, stay in close touch with the team over there. Um, we active members of the Green Banking Network, which kind of gets together around COP. So it's interesting. The only other green bank, green investment bank that's probably been quite similar to us was was the UK's Green Investment Bank, which was two and a half billion pounds, so smaller than us, despite a, a bigger economy, but maybe a little more focused. And they did a lot of offshore wind. And then, of course, after a number of years, sold themselves to uh, my old employer, uh, Macquarie. And um, I An think- An Australian giant. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And you know, look, we, we work with private sector players like Macquarie. I think the Brits did a good job with that in the sense they got something up and running and sold it. But yes, yeah, so uh, it's an ongoing dialogue where, you know, we're very flattered that people are constantly coming to us and asking, you can hear about how we were established and what lessons were learned, what's, you know, what's been good, what's not been, well, not so good. And I think when I look at the US, there are some states that have, you know, green banks, you're probably as, as well plugged into this stuff as, as I am. And I think through the Inflation Reduction Act, there's there's a move to obviously wholesale capital and, and push it out to, to various banking agencies, non-bank lenders and others uh, down at the state level. So they kind of reach communities, uh, which is something that we have done a bit of. But yes, I expect to see more of it over coming years. You completed 10 years last year. We did. And you've now got this massive new capital injection to do more. But if you were to sum up the last 10 years in lessons learned, how would you best sum it up? I think the flexibility and reach that we've had, debt, equity, and being able to invest across nearly all sectors, but nuclear, carbon capture and storage, has allowed us to see so much. And there's such an enormous interconnection now between various sectors, the built environment, agriculture, residential Australia, distributed energy, utility scale energy. And I think all of that coming together is something that that I've really witnessed over the last, well, I've been a CEO for six and a half years. I've really witnessed that the world is coming to the transition. You know, we were in some ways at the forefront of it. And then we've seen capital, regulators, governments, industries, everyone signed on to net zero. If, if you're not, you're probably kind of concerned. And markets are changing all the time. You know, what was kind of made sense in a utility scale solar in 2010 is a very, very different proposition in 2023. So things are changing all the time. The sector's moving more quickly than ever. Taxonomy, 
and regulation is coming down the pipe. We're having to adapt to that. That's probably another new frontier that we're yet to really tackle. Financed emissions, reporting on that. Corporate Australia is going to have to report on its exposure to climate. So in a nutshell, it's probably the most dynamic and fast-moving environment that I've ever witnessed. Thank you for coming on the show. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. A lot more money is needed to finance clean energy projects and cut emissions, which is why it's so exciting to see a government commit large sums of money to doing just that. Since recording this conversation with Ian, the CEFC has announced a $3 billion investment in the state of Western Australia. It comes out of the Rewiring the Nation Fund and will help expand the state's transmission lines and renewable sector. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, I recommend you go back and listen to our interview with Jigar Shah. He's playing a role that's similar to Ian's, but in the US and with a lot more money to work with. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Send it to a friend or send it to someone who loves Australia. Get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Kira Bintram. I am Akshatrati, back next week.